So this morning, to begin off, I will start reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 12. And once you are turned there, please, if you would, if you're willing and able, let's stand out of reverence of the Word of God as we devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3, in the Word of the Lord says this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for a controversy and for quarrels about words, which produces envy, dissonance, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, were, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now let's pray together once again this morning. Our Father, our God, we have read your word that you have so graciously given to us in a written form in which we are able to go back to it again and again and again. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you will convict us and that we would follow after Christ. Lord, I pray that you be with me. I pray that your word will be proclaimed and only your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the New Testament, and particularly in the Pauline epistles, there are several commands or imperatives that use military language or metaphors or similes to describe the Christian life. And Paul's call, and even to the point where Paul calls those who serve along him fellow soldiers. He does so in Philippians chapter 2 and Philemon verse 2. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul uses a simile to describe how Christians are to press on in the Christian life. Where he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Then Ephesians chapter 6, we see there that Paul describes the, uh, the armor of God, the full armor of God in which the Christian is to put on in the midst of spiritual warfare. And even earlier in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 18, Timothy is encouraged to wage the good warfare against false teaching while holding faith in a good conscience. And now, in our text this morning, in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul begins to give Timothy some more imperatives, some more commands. And keeping with that military illustration, it, seems, it sounds like Paul has given Timothy his marching orders on how to move forward, how to wage this good warfare. Uh, one commentator describes this section as Paul giving Timothy his rules for, uh, rules for engagement so that when confusion comes into the church, they're able to fall back on these commands as they work to move forward and out of such confusion. And this morning I would like for us to consider the four marching orders that we see here in verses 11 and 12. So if you would, go ahead and place your eyes with me on verse 11 again. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Our first marching order this morning is to flee. Flee from what? Flee these things. Well, what things? What are we to flee from? Well, to answer that, we have to look at our context and take a few steps back. And we notice that there's a contrast that's being made here in this passage. We see in verse 11, Timothy is being called a man of God. And he's being contrasted with the false teachers that Paul has, mentioned, that has already mentioned in verses 3 through 10. Now, while... First Timothy is written to Timothy, who was a pastor, who was an elder of the church of Ephesus. And as I've told my church, as we've been working through First Timothy, is that Paul had wrote this letter knowing and thinking that the church will be reading this letter over Timothy's shoulders. And even this letter would be to be read out loud in their corporate gathering together. So while this letter is particularly to Timothy, it still applies to all Christians to get today as we are all children of God. So Timothy, the man of God, is to flee these things. He is to flee from the things that the false teachers were doing. We as Christians are to flee from false teaching that has only a little bit of Christ and puts him on the sidelines and not have him at the very center of all that they teach. Christians are to flee from uncraving, unhealthy cravings for controversies and quarrels about words. Christians are to flee from divisive talk that produces envy, dissonance, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. 
Christians are to flee from a false religion that imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain. Christians are to flee from discontentment and the love of money. And just in like military strategies, at times the best thing to do is to flee. And in the Christian life, there will be times in which you must show your back to evil and to sin and to run as fast as your legs will allow you and flee from it. Going in the other direction. I believe there's too many times in which we fool ourselves into thinking that we are strong enough to endure evil, to endure sin on our own. And it's in those moments in which we get caught up in sin and evil. But, and so as there's times to flee, we must flee, but we must flee with a purpose. And that's our second marching order this morning, which is to pursue. You're not to flee aimlessly, but rather you are to flee from evil and false teaching and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The man of God is to pursue righteousness, having righteous conduct and fairness in his dealing with his fellow man. Righteousness speaks to the focus of the Christian relationship with those around him, his fellow man. The man of God is to pursue godliness. They are to live a godly life, one that honors the Lord and has value for all things in this life presently and in the life to come. Godliness has a focus on the Christian relationship with God. And righteousness and godliness, they go together. They go hand in hand. And they both build upon one another. The Christian needs both to be able to live a quiet, godly, dignified life in which that Paul has encouraged and exhorted Timothy back in chapter 2, verse 2. The man of God is to pursue faith and love. And every list that you see regarding Christian virtues of the Christian faith, faith and love is at the very center of them. Faith here is not referring to our faithfulness and how we do these things or live the Christian life, but rather faith and trusting in God. The man of God is to love in such a way in which they expect nothing in return. To have this agape love, this unconditional love, which we only see perfectly in God Himself, as God is love. The Christian is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also to love their neighbor as yourself. The man of God is to pursue steadfastness. Instead of steadfastness, your Bible may say patience or perseverance. There's nowhere mentioned in these marching orders that the Christian life will be easy for the man of God. There will be plenty of ups and downs, and potentially more downs than up. 
However, as Paul has already commanded in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Christians must persist as they keep a close watch on their life and on the doctrine that they are teaching and also the doctrine they are being taught. This steadfastness is one that has a won't-quit determination in the face of opposition to the gospel. The man of God is to pursue gentleness. Again, your Bible there may say meekness. Now, this may be a little bit of an odd one when we consider a marching orders. But gentle and gentleness is particularly not related to soldiers necessarily. Uh, one, I've seen one has jokingly put it elsewhere that you do not see the army re recruiting posters say we are looking for a few gentle men. However, gentleness has great benefit within the church for the man of God, particularly dealing with doctrinal error. Paul later says in 2 Timothy that we are to uh, correct your opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance that leads them to the truth. Jonathan Edwards puts it in this regards of the Christian being gentle. He says, It is the duty of God's people to be steadfast and vigorous in their opposition to the designs and ways of such as are endeavoring to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. If therefore we see any of the followers of Christ in the midst of the most violent, unreasonable, and wicked opposition of God's and his own enemies, while maintaining under this temptation the humility and quietness and gentleness of a lamb and the harmlessness and love and sweetness of a dove, we may well judge that he is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So those are our first marching orders. Flee and pursue. They go together. They go hand in hand. In fact, I believe they can be best summed up in one word of repentance. Because when, you, when one repents from sin, you don't just turn around away from sin and aimlessly go about. Because if that's what your plan or what your thought of repentance is, you'll be turning away from one sin going right into another. Say, for example, you repent from lust, but then you find yourself very quickly becoming a glutton. Or you repent from allowing your tongue to run free, but now you harbor jealous and proud thoughts. Your repentance is not complete and just turning away from sin. You must also pursue Christ. The men and women of God will flee from sin and evil and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Our third marching order this morning we see in verse 12 is to fight. The man of God is to fight the good fight of the faith. 
throughout First Timothy, this is a very common theme that comes up again and again. And, and every time it comes up, it's in the context of fighting against false doctrine, false teaching. The Christian is to fight for Orthodox Christianity, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. As the two, previous two marching orders deals with how the Christian, how you are to live, now you must also fight for sound doctrine as well. Life and doctrine, they go together like two best friends. Like peanut butter and jelly or salt and pepper or milk and cookies. And yes, I realize all my examples are food. But doctrine without life is dead orthodoxy. And life without doctrine is just idolatry. And brothers and sisters, this fight is not easy. The word that is used here has an indication of a struggle. It will be difficult. But this is a fight worth fighting. The man and the woman of God must fight to defend the faith. They must fight for the infallibility, the inherency, and the sufficiency of Scripture and that the Bible is the very written Word of God. The Christian is to fight for the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is both truly God and truly man. The Christian is to fight for the depravity of, human, of humanity, that man has been born into sin and misery. They are to fight for the holiness of God. That there is coming a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. Fight for the sufficiency of the substitutionary atonement. That Christ died in the place of sinners. Fight for the bodily resurrection. That our Lord and Savior is a risen Lord. Fight for the sovereignty of God's grace. That salvation is a gift and choice of God. To the praise of His glory. The fight for these truths is a good fight of the faith. Lastly, our last marching order in verse 12 is to take hold. And particularly to take hold of eternal life. Timothy, he had received eternal life when he first came to Jesus in faith. And every Christian does. Eternal life is God's free gift to everyone who comes to Him trusting in Jesus Christ and asking for forgiveness of sin. As Paul has mentioned at the beginning of this letter, those who believe on Jesus Christ receives eternal life. But Timothy still needed to take hold of this eternal life. That is that he needed to grasp it. He needed to hang on to it for all that is worth. In the sense of hanging on to it for dear life. And this taking hold of eternal life is not one that you do all on your own. No, this is something you do corporately with the church. By this good confession that has been made in the presence 
of many. Now there is some debate on what this confession is, this good confession that Timothy made in the presence of many. Uh, some say that it points to his ordination, which has been mentioned throughout 1 Timothy. But others say that it is actually referring to Timothy's baptism. And that is the one in which I agree with that's in view here. Because it is baptism, you are baptized when you have been given eternal life. Philip Ryken explains this good confession in the presence of many witnesses like this. He says, It's more likely, however, that Timothy made his good confession at his baptism. Ordination is a call to the ministry of the gospel. But what is mentioned here is the call to eternal life itself. A call that comes with baptism for the remission of sins. Like his ordination, Timothy baptism would have taken place in the presence of many witnesses. For Christian baptism has always been part of the public worship of the church. By mentioning his confession this way, Paul was appealing to Timothy's sense of honor. He had made a public confession of his faith in Jesus Christ and has vowed to follow him to the death. Not only that, but he made a, his vow in the presence of the church. As Timothy looked back on that occasion, that great occasion, and remembered the faces of the beloved friends who had witnessed his baptism, he would be inspired to obey his orders until the glorious end. Now, while Philip Ryken himself is a Presbyterian, I believe his comments here in this text here actually strengthens the position of credo-baptism, of believers' baptism. Here we see that there is much more than to baptism than just being dunked. A lot more than that. Being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is making that good confession, not privately, but in the presence of many witnesses, the church. The one making the confession is saying that they have been united with Jesus and have been given salvation by God's grace alone. The baptism itself symbolizes their death, burial, and resurrection with their risen Lord Jesus Christ. And now they are to flee from sin and from evil to pursue Christ to fight the good fight of the faith and to take hold of the eternal life in which he has been called and given. And when those times and seasons of doubts come, because they most certainly will, we can look back to that good confession in which we make through our baptism that has been seen by many witnesses and remember the work that God has accomplished in our lives and in the church. And that He has given eternal life then, He's given eternal life now, and He will give eternal life forevermore. Your baptism serves as a means of grace that draws you nearer to the Lord in difficult times. And this is why we as Baptists, we hold the credo baptism, believer's baptism. Because the only ones who have been 
who are qualified to be baptized are those who have been born again, who has been caused to be born again by God and repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and make such a good confession. Now, with baptism, there is a tendency to rush someone to the baptistry the moment they make a profession. And it appears at times that the motivations to do that is so that at the end of the year you're able to submit how many baptisms you've had to show just how good of a church you really are. Now, instead of rushing someone to the baptistry, after they make such a profession, there ought to be a time of discipleship. A time in which that the church comes alongside of them and ensure that they understand what they are professing so that their profession could become a confession. Something in which they can point back to. And not just a confession, but a good confession. And if you have taken disciple away here at the seminary, you know that the imperative in the Great Commission isn't to baptize. It is to make disciples. And it's only those disciples who are qualified to be baptized. And this is important. This is vitally important because you will hear time and time again. I know I've heard it numerous times in my short time of ministry that people don't really understand the gospel when they were baptized. And their baptism doesn't serve as a good confession. In the early church, when someone professed Christ, they would enter into a time of training to ensure that their profession was a good confession. And this time of training would end on Easter, in which they would baptize everyone on, on that day in which they celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are making that good and sure confession. Now, I am in no way advocating for a long delay before baptism. But there should be a time in which to see if the one who is professing Christ is truly professing Christ and is understands the basics of the gospel and what Jesus came to do and what is now required of them as a born-again believer. Do they understand that they are to flee from sin, from all evil and from false teaching? Do they understand that they are to pursue Christ, His righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? Do they understand that they are to fight the good fight of the faith? Do they understand that in times of difficulty, since the Christian life isn't a walk in the park, that they need to take hold of eternal life in which they made a con good confession of in the presence of many witnesses. And it is those witnesses, the church, that comes alongside of them and encourages them and disciples them as they carry out these marching orders. And the church is also encouraged by this good confession that is being made through baptism as this is a reminder that the Lord is still adding to His church 
daily. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the living God. What a means of grace and gift that the ordinance of baptism is that Jesus has given us. It's a gift and a grace that we should take seriously. Now, looking at these marching orders that belong to the man of God and to every Christian, it seems very daunting, doesn't it? These orders, in fact, can be very discouraging as we continue to fail them. We continue to flee from Christ, pursue sin, evil, and wickedness, fight bad fights, and to take hold of this world. And I know that's how I felt when I read these marching orders here in these verses. And I asked myself, what hope do I have to be able to do these things? Friends, our only hope is Jesus Christ. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully and has been giving me great hope and encouragement in this regards. The first question goes like this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I want you to listen to this answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, by His Holy Spirit, I mean, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready for now on to live for Him. What a beautiful and full answer that we see here. Because what is your only hope that you will flee from sin, evil, and false teaching? Christ. That is your, he is your only hope. What is your only hope that you will pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness? Christ. What is your only hope that you will fight the good fight of the faith? Christ. What is your only hope that you will take hold of the internal life and what you were called to? Christ. What is your only hope and comfort in life and in death? The Lord Jesus Christ. I must ask, is this your good confession? These marching orders are only possible through Christ. Because you and I do not have the strength to do them all on our own. So I urge you to trust and to rest in Christ. Flee from sin. Pursue Christ. 
fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of eternal life.